This is the KPMG Current Conversations Podcast, and this episode is a balancing challenge. Welcome to the KPMG Current Conversations Podcast, brought to you by the KPMG Global Energy Institute. Current Conversations is a podcast series featuring in-depth conversations with the nation's top energy executives and luminaries to explore today's most pressing issues and emerging challenges affecting our industry. On June 22, 2020, Regina Mayer, KPMG Global and U.S. Head of Energy, connected with Connie Lau, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hawaiian Electric Industries, Inc., and Chairman of American Savings Bank, FSB. Connie shares how she balances the oversight of these two companies that are similar in some ways, both highly regulated and essential, and yet vastly different in others. Add to that the fact that they run on volcanic islands in the middle of the Pacific, and several unique challenges emerge. Thank you for joining me, Connie. Why don't you take a few minutes to describe your role as the president and CEO of Hawaiian Electric Industries and the chairman of American Savings Bank. Our listeners may not realize that HEI is a holding company for both a bank and the Hawaiian Electric Utility. How do you balance oversight of these two very different business entities? You're absolutely right, Regina. Uh, We are a very unusual company in that we are the holding company, the owner of Hawaiian Electric, which is the electric utility that serves 95% of the state of Hawaii. But we're also the owner of American Savings Bank, which is the third largest financial institution in the state. And so we're this combination company of essential infrastructure on the utility side and then essential services through the banking services with American Savings Bank. Um, So both of them are very highly regulated, um, each in their own swim lanes, and uh, we've been together for, gosh, over 30 years. So it's been a great combination that's worked well for our shareholders and also for the community. So you mentioned some of the things that are similar, regulated, uh, you know, core services, essential. What's different and what are some of the challenges that overseeing both of those entities might create for you as a CEO or for your board? Mm-hmm. Um, well, certainly there's a lot of issues around governance that we have to be in- incredibly mindful of. Um, and they center around the fact that each has a, an obligation to its regulators and the public Uh, that we need to make sure each individually uh, meets that. Uh, For example, uh, uh, on the utility side, we all know that they have the franchise obligation to serve uh, and to provide electric service at reasonable cost um, and uh, much cleaner energy these days. Uh, And um, on the banking side, of course, it's to make sure that we keep depositors' funds safe and sound and we run the bank very prudently. And so we have uh, very well-developed management teams on both sides of the businesses. Uh, But what I'd say is that, frankly, the intuitive feel of each business is very different, um, banking and energy. Um, And so, at least for me personally, I was very fortunate in that I started on our utility side uh, and then went over to uh, run our bank 
Um, and so I know both industries uh, quite well, but as I say, just the feel of them um, is very, very different. Um, an example is that uh, in banking, uh, the financial risk can develop very, very quickly. Uh, interest rate risk, now credit risk, um, versus the utility side, very, very long-term um, uh, view uh, to make sure that you are putting in place what can be, you know, 40, 50, even 60-year uh, assets, uh, long uh, infrastructure that uh, is going to serve the public for a long period of time. Indeed, very diverse and great opportunity for you as you built your career. Let's focus more directly on the utility, given that our listeners are from the energy industry. And Connie, as you're well aware, I'm born and raised in Hawaii as well, like yourself. Hawaii is very near and dear to my heart. But it's a unique state, right? It's isolated. It's in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, far from the continental U.S. The island has to, each island uh, has to operate independently and be self-sustaining. Tell us how the utility manages generation and grid reliability to meet the demands of the 1.4 million residents scattered across the islands. And as you said, you serve 95% of that population. Yeah, you really hit it on the head, um, Regina, because we do serve uh, uh, multiple islands, but each is a separate island grid. And so it's really incumbent on our utility to be able to balance the supply and demand island by island. Uh, you know, we're not part of a uh, large um, power pool where we can rely on any other utility to um, provide power or any other grid for stability. Our guys have to do it uh, independently uh, island by island. Um, and that's very, very much not an easy thing to do. Uh, that's why you'll see in generation, um, like many island or isolated locations, we actually still rely uh, on oil, which is one of the state's goals to get us off of oil. Um, and that uh, means that uh, everything has to be brought into the state. Um, the other issue that we face is that as we've moved to renewables, uh, we have been one of the utilities that has been leading in the area of um, basically firming up renewables, uh, and that's largely through storage. So a lot of our procurements recently have been a combination of, uh, for example, solar and storage, or some of the earlier ones were wind and storage. Um, so Hawaii is a very interesting market to watch uh, to see how one can run a grid uh, that is 100% uh, renewable um, and still make sure we keep the lights on, um, and even more difficult island by island. Um, and then you asked about grid management, and uh, because you did uh, grow up here, I think what a lot of people don't understand about our islands is that they are volcanic. They come straight up out of the ocean, and those mountains are actually quite uh, large. Uh, they're actually as high as the Rocky Mountains. So Mauna Kea, which is our largest, is almost 14,000 feet above sea level. And if you actually measured it from the um, ocean floor, uh, it is the largest mountain on Earth at uh, almost 33,000. 
uh, feet, so quite large, which means that the terrain that we manage is very diverse, uh, ranging from very mountainous regions uh, where uh, the only way we can get to our lines and install them is uh, using helicopters um, to uh, very uh, urban areas, dense urban areas like Waikiki or Honolulu uh, with a lot of high-rise condominiums to um, very rural areas like on the Big Island where the population is really spread out. Um, so it's uh, very interesting for us to be able to manage a grid through that very varied um, uh, circumstances. So in some areas, now that uh, you can do things like microgrids, uh, we're looking at in uh, some of the rural areas, uh, the microgrids to um, be able to uh, better serve um, rather than just um, generating everything in central generation plants um, and sending it out over long uh, transmission lines uh, to having uh, smaller areas uh, with microgrids. It also really helps for resiliency for communities. I think you, you described the terrain very well for people that aren't from there or haven't had a chance to visit. In doing my preparation, I did see that Hawaiian Electric was founded in 1891. I'm stringing an 11K. <laughs> wire across the pulley. I just was trying to even visualize somebody stringing <laughs> wire across the pulley in 1891. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And just a little uh, anecdote. Uh, as you know, the pulley, uh, which is on the island of Oahu, is actually the very, very, a set of very, very steep cliffs. And when King Kamehameha was um, uniting the islands, uh, he drove the troops of the King of Oahu up through the poly and then pushed them over those cliffs to their death. <laughs> so they are very, very steep. Um, exactly. Really <laughs> <laughs> your, your first yeah. linemen were very uh, entrepreneurial. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And continue well, to know, be. That's, yeah, and, and, that, and that's uh, led to us really being interested in a lot of the new technologies like drone technology. Uh, to be able to send the drones up and um, uh, inspect the lines. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, I think all utilities are very uh, interested in that, but it's uh, really something to be able to send drones up when the winds are blowing at 50, 60 miles an hour up at the pulley. <laughs> right, for sure. So you talked about renewable energy and being... Uh, already having strong penetration there. And Hawaii as a state has very progressive ambitions around um, renewable energy. I think you were the first in the nation to set a target of achieving 100% renewable use by 2045. And you already have, as you indicated, significant deployment. Can you say more about how much is in place today and how you envision getting to the 100% target? Sure. Um, we're at about 28% today, and that may not seem high relative to some of our brethren on the U.S. mainland, but you have to consider that Hawaii uh, it has, uh, doesn't have um, things like hydro resources or nuclear resources, um, and so uh, it really has been oil-fired, and then 
uh, the so-called true renewables like solar and wind, and we do have a little bit of geothermal. Um, we do believe that we are going to make our next milestone, uh, which is set in law here, which is 30% by the end of this year. And then the next milestone is actually 40% uh, by uh, 2030 on our way to the 100%, as you mentioned, by 2045. Um, we actually are trying to push uh, the edge of those milestones and get there even faster. Uh, we have been doing the largest renewable procurement in the state's history. Uh, we did one called Stage 1, and we just announced the uh, winners for the Stage 2 procurement. Uh, uh, we've selected 16 projects, uh, totaling uh, 460 megawatts and over 3 gigawatt hours of storage. And as I mentioned earlier, the really interesting thing in Hawaii is that because we need to balance the grid at the same time, we can't just focus on procuring the energy portion of it. We also have to worry about the stability of the grid. And so the uh, projects that have been um, winning are a combination of solar and storage. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting uh, situation in Hawaii. Uh, and you know, in addition to the 100% RPS, which um, impacts the power sector, uh, we also have a law in the state to go to carbon neutrality by 2045. Um, so that's created some really interesting opportunities for our utility to help our state um, in sectors besides the power sector. Um, particularly transportation. Um, and so we're a very, very big proponent and supporter of um, electric transportation for uh, land vehicles and also doing things like helping electrify our port with electric cranes and forklifts. Um, but it's a, it's a really exciting place to be in the world, to be on the forefront of all these clean energy technologies. That's terrific. And I know residential rooftop solar is has a wide use in Hawaii. How does that factor into your overall plans, and what challenges or opportunities does that create? Yeah, so we are a leader in rooftop solar. Um, uh, per capita, we have 20 times what the next uh, state, which is California, has. And, you know, if you, you think about us as islands, we actually don't have a lot of land. And so being able to put solar on people's rooftops is really important to us being able to get to 100% um, RPS. Um, uh, right now, 30% of our homeowners uh, do have rooftop solar. Uh, and I can say they just love it. Uh, and we were really uh, very happy to see that during this whole COVID time period that uh, the installations of rooftop solar did not slow down. Uh, so we're still seeing uh, good adoption of rooftop solar. Of course, um, some of the programs uh, uh, have changed a little bit. So, uh, you know, as we all know, uh, solar started off with tons of subsidies, in fact, with all the uh, tax credits and the uh, net energy metering tariffs here in Hawaii, the payback period for some of these systems dropped as low as two or three years. 
so uh, everybody rushed to put on rooftop solar. And since then, uh, the payback periods have extended out, but it's still very, very popular. And um, I think it's also proving to be very popular from an individual resilience perspective because a lot of homeowners really enjoy uh, being able to contribute to these climate goals uh, by having their own rooftop solar um, and then also thinking about the resiliency of having their own systems. Um, right now, uh, we're going to enter into uh, a big push for community-based renewable energy or CBRE. And the reason for that is, um, you know, we have a, a population here that really wants to help out in the fight against climate change. And uh, that includes people who don't have their own rooftops. And so the community-based renewable energy systems will allow uh, non-homeowners um, to be able to participate uh, with credits that are transferable uh, when they move, if they're a renter, or um, you know, say there's a church or other nonprofit that wants to install uh, a PV system and its members want to participate in uh, the benefits of that system. Um, so it's a, it's a it's a fun time. <laughs> yeah, really innovative. So you mentioned COVID. So as we have this conversation, we are three months into the global and U.S. quarantine situation. Hawaii's been particularly stringent with a 14-day mandatory quarantine for anyone coming in from the mainland, as well as there were limits uh, uh, just a, re recently on inner island activity. Given the interdependence of the islands, how did you manage the business with those restrictions in place? How did it affect your employees, supply chains, maintenance, repairs? Um, walk us through what happened. Sure. Um, you know, I think like uh, most of our brethren across the United States, being essential infrastructure um, and, uh, you know, we knew right from the get-go that it was going to be our role to continue to operate right through. And in fact, as we all know, it became even more important um, to the public because with all the stay-at-home orders, um, and our state most definitely had them, and quite early on, uh, you know, people were working from home. So it was even more important for uh, our residential customers to have reliable service. Um, and um, I think what was what really sets our industry apart um, and uh, is the fact that um, our entire industry from a national perspective um, is very, very well coordinated. And so um, all of us were sharing best practices across the nation um, and our trade association, uh, Edison Electric Institute, EEI, uh, helped Honcho uh, the um, uh, drafting of a resource guide uh, that we all continued to um, contribute to as we learned various things. For example, uh, you know, going out to serve customers. Um, you know, normally, you know, you send someone out and you, uh, you don't think anything of uh, who might be in that home. Um, but uh, w we needed to add uh, scripts um, in the call center and also scripts for our uh, field service operators to be able to ask whether there was someone in the home that had tested positive or 
uh, whether um, someone had uh, come back in that was visiting, uh, coming from out of state where there might be uh, potential risk so that we could make sure that we kept both our employees and customers safe but continued to provide service throughout. And then we also have an organization um, in our sector which is called the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council or ESCC. And uh, through the ESCC, we have a very, very strong partnership with the Department of Energy, Department of Homeland Security. And so we are actually able to work very closely with our federal partners on a real-time basis. Uh, for example, um, with um, PPE, uh, as we all know, you know, the priority for PPE was for healthcare workers. Um, but we needed to get across the message that um, you know our electricity workers were uh, very important to uh, uh, you know getting us through COVID. Uh, through this very strong partnership, we were able to get the message through to uh, Health and Human Services that hey, without electricity, the hospitals can't operate. Um, there's no ICUs and the ventilators can't be on. Uh, and so we were able to work with the federal, with our federal partners to get uh, some priority PPE for our most critical workers, um, particularly those who are sequestered in power plant uh, control rooms um, and really were, were uh, having to work together in very close uh, quarters, just like um, healthcare workers in hospitals. And so really important to be able to uh, have the testing, uh, the immediate result testings that could tell you whether anyone in that group um, was testing positive uh, for the benefit of that total group. Um, so uh, lots of uh, great lessons learned um, during COVID and lots of um, sharing of best practices. And I'm sure that the lessons learned are going to go on uh, for quite a while. I'll, I'll give one more example. Um, you know, uh, I mentioned the field service folks. Uh, you know, we went to uh, typical um, splitting of the crews in AB groups, uh, two weeks on, two weeks off, uh, and also, um, uh, you know, rules like uh, for vehicles, just having single-person uh, vehicles rather than, uh, say, two people in a vehicle. Um, and, uh, you know, we all think about that company by company. But remember, um, the electricity industry is one that uh, has very strong uh, culture of mutual assistance. Um, and particularly as we approached June 1 and the start of the hurricane season, it was really important to um, be able to develop um, mutual protocols across the industry of, uh, to be able to um, keep workers that were coming in from other utilities uh, to help um, a particular utility in the area that was going to be hit uh, by a storm. Um, and so that also was uh, part of what we were doing and getting uh, adapting to COVID and then being able to be prepared for our primary responsibilities, like making sure we keep the lights on during hurricane season. 
And, and definitely, you're right. Energy was essential, is essential. And we talked a lot about different frontline workers, from the healthcare professionals to grocery store uh, employees, gas stations, and I think our utility colleagues were a little bit of the unsung heroes because, like you said, the hospitals couldn't uh, survive, but all of us working from home and my kids that were finishing college and finishing fifth grade from home too couldn't none of that would have happened without the electricity staying on so well done right and all the grocery stores all the grocery stores and the refrigeration that was necessary right yeah right you're the backbone the (laughs) industry is the backbone so another leading edge aspect to how hawaiian electric is managed is this performance-based rate making process where you tie stakeholder success to outcomes and I saw the, the numerous KPIs that you track and report quite transparently on your website. Tell our listeners more about the program and its benefits and how you use it to drive improved performance. Yeah, so um, we are uh, still, um, it's still a work in progress, first of all. Uh, we actually have been um, on the road to this transition for several years. Uh, I think probably the early, early parts of it before uh, it even became a term called performance-based rate-making was uh, back in the early 2010, 11, 12 period when we moved to decoupling. Um, And so we are one of the uh, utilities that is decoupled on, um, uh, and so our sales, for example, or our revenues are decoupled from volumetric sales, doesn't matter whether sales go up or sales go down, our revenues are targeted at a certain amount. Um, And then we were recoupled on the cost side uh, with uh, rate adjustment mechanisms covering O&M and uh, capital expenditures. Um, uh, You know, we have an energy cost recovery clause for our fuel, even tension is in a tracker. Uh, and that was to make sure that all these costs were very transparent. Um, and then what's happening now is we are uh, layering on top these performance-based metrics. Um, and, uh, for example, some of them are uh, very tactical. Uh, for example, um, we wanted to improve um, customer satisfaction uh, and, um, in particular, the performance in our call centers. Um, and so there were there were metrics put in, incentive metrics put in on time to uh, answer calls and resolve calls, um, and we've been doing very well on those. But the ultimate intent is to be able to uh, work with our commission um, and stakeholders to move to societal level goals. Uh, so things like, um, uh, you know, the renewable energy and uh, greenhouse gas reduction or community resilience, you know, and uh, how do we all work together to define what we mean, begin uh, tracking the data and building metrics that then we can actually report against and uh, the commission uh, can uh, easily see that we're either making or not making that goal. Um, and the other important thing about Hawaii is because um, our whole trans- energy transformation to clean energy is happening um, across the entire state, across all sectors, 
um, you know, everybody's got to work together. It's, uh, you would know this word, Regina, kako. It's a kako thing, uh, which is a Hawaiian word for all together. We We are all in it together. Uh, we all have to make it happen, including, you know, homeowners that uh, are installing rooftop solar. Um, so it's, it's a COCO thing, um, and uh, through performance-based rate making, I think that will help us uh, define these bigger visions and these bigger goals, and then be able to break them down into uh, more tactical ones that can actually uh, drive performance um, that uh, directly aligns with societal goals. It's terrific. I mean, I thought it was incredibly robust and uh, quite transparent. So um, digital has been very critical through the pandemic in our ability to engage with customers digitally. What have you learned either from the bank or from the utility about how you effectively engaged with your customers virtually? And then what do you think is going to stick on the, on the back end at, at, when at some point we come out of the pandemic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, to um, uh, uh, borrow a phrase from uh, our uh, director at CISA, uh, I, Chris Krebs, he calls it securing the digital transformation. Uh, and I think COVID really did um, uh, enhance the digital transformation. You know, a lot of people who uh, never were comfortable with digital, had no interest in going di- digital, have done so. Um, and so I know uh, many companies, including ours, where you know we thought it was going to take five years to get the adoption rates of uh, 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 digital transactions. You know, they've it's almost happened overnight, um, and I think it's important to separate out those that um, really have enhanced the performance and productivity of the business, uh, and uh, secure those and keep those um, for the benefit. Uh, of company for of uh, customers and shareholders going forward, um, and I think it's also highlighted the fact that a lot of the investments that uh, we all uh, made and uh, hopefully are uh, you know still making, it's uh, highlighted the value of those investments in technology that have allowed us to uh, do more things remotely. I mean, you know, think about all the wind farms and solar farms that have tremendous uh, digital controls and so-called digital twin uh, uh, modeling uh, that allows us to see a lot of things um, digitally rather than having to physically go out. And it just helps improve uh, the performance um, all around. and so I, I think we all have been completely changed. A lot of it was change that was already occurring, uh, but the pandemic has really accelerated uh, that move and also underscored the value that uh, can be created uh, through these digital uh, technologies. Um, yes, Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, is quoted as saying, that we had two years worth of digital transformation take place in two months. So those utilities that already had significant digital investments, it was a lot easier to pivot, uh, and it certainly could change customer behavior pretty dramatically. 
Yes, yeah, and and I think that's the other interesting thing is what are customers now going to expect? Because right. some of them have now gotten used to, uh, you know, these digital technologies. And I tell you, I just watch my kids when they do things like order food. I mean, they can order exactly the burrito that they want, you know, with right. all the different things just online. And boom, it's ready for them to pick up uh, whenever they want. And gone are the days when you have to call the electric company to tell them your power's out, right? So they know, and they can tell you when they, you can expect to have it back on. So it's that's the preferred model uh, for engaging going forward. Right. Okay. I agree. <laughs> but last question, Connie. So you've had a highly successful career growing up in Hawaii, attending Yale and Stanford, getting an earning an MBA and a JD. You've been the CEO since 2006. You've done other things like chair the National Infrastructure Advisory Council that provided guidance to President Obama. You're on the boards of Matson and the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, among others. What words of wisdom would you offer other women in energy about how we can manage our careers for long-term success? Yeah, so so before I answer you, I'll just uh, note, I actually am still chairing the National Infrastructure Advisory Council, so now advising uh, President Trump and his administration. Ah, excellent. Uh, okay, I didn't yeah. realize that was an ongoing thing. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, just still, still doing that. Um, so, I, you know, the, uh, the best advice I can uh, give um, uh, both women and also minorities is, you know, you really need to have confidence in who you are, um, even though your background might be really, really different. And I, I can still feel all the meetings that I've been in uh, where the discussion was going on uh, and um, because I came from a different background, you know, I had a different cohort when I was growing up, maybe even, you know, different circumstances, I would, I would hesitate, you know, and, and not necessarily always, uh, uh, you know, share my thoughts because I was wondering, gosh, you know, am I, am I really uh, off base because, you know, I, I think so differently. And uh, I think, you, you know, you got to get over that and have uh, confidence. And I think now uh, that there's so much more discussion about the value of diversity of thought, of diversity of backgrounds, diversity of experiences, and the greater richness that that can bring to problem solution, uh, I think we all have a license now to make sure and, a, and an obligation to make sure that we do uh, speak our minds. Um, I think you actually are seeing that now in the whole Black Lives Matter, that there's a lot of people of all different uh, races and ethnicities speaking up uh, who believe that, uh, you know, there are uh, certain parts of um, all of our past that just shouldn't be um, because at the, uh, at the base, you know, we're all humans and uh, we're all uh, hopefully committed to the same things and the same purposes. Um, so that would be my best advice, Regina. That's, that's great. And you broke a lot of those glass ceilings, Connie, before we had as much discussion about the importance of diversity of thought 
to thank you for paving the way. And hopefully what we're seeing now with the movement that you mentioned and the great need to drive greater societal justice and racial equality hopefully makes it just accelerate that process and makes it even easier for folks from all walks of life to make a difference and have an impact. Thank you again for your time. It's been a privilege having you. Uh, and it's just terrific to showcase a local girl from Hawaii. <laughs> Thanks, Regina. And hopefully I'll get to see you here on the shores of Hawaii. I would love that. Aloha, Connie. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast episode on a balancing challenge. A transcript of this episode is available on the KPMG Global Energy Institute at www.kpmgglobalenergyinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast to be notified of new episodes. 